Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, we'll grab a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 2. And as you're finding your places, we've started this new series through the book of Genesis. So far, we've seen that God created this world as a kind of cosmic temple for His worship, and He created mankind in His image to facilitate worship, in a manner of speaking, by filling the earth with living representations of His goodness and glory. That's what this whole thing is about. And that sounds great, but then that raises the question, if, if that is true, and that's what this world is for, and that's why we were put here, then why are things the way they are? Why is this life so difficult so often? Why do we get sick? Why are there natural disasters? Why do people do terrible things to each other? Why do we all eventually face the the inescapable reality of death? Well, we're going to find the answer this morning as we read the story of how everything in creation went from being very good to very wrong. So we're in Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So last week we looked at Genesis chapter 2 and the, the creation and commission of mankind as both male and female. As we saw that the man was tasked with keeping and working the Garden of Eden, and the woman was tasked with helping him as they worked together to exercise dominion over the rest of creation. And now as we pick up here in chapter 3, we are introduced to a new character in the story, the serpent or the snake. Verse 1 says that the serpent was more crafty than all the other animals. And that expression conveys that the serpent is unusually perceptive and deceptive. And and in this context, that, that means that he has an ability to recognize potential weaknesses and then exploit them for his own purposes. And at some point, we aren't sure of when, this, that happened exactly, but since the, the man and woman haven't been fruitful and multiplied yet, we assume that it's fairly soon after the events of chapter 2. But he approaches the woman and he asks her a question. He says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I, I know you guys have to be hungry, but, but I heard 
that God's not allowing you to eat anything over here. Is that true? Is God just going to let you starve to death? Now, of course, that's not what God said at all. Uh, He didn't say that they couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden. He actually said the exact opposite. And the serpent knows this, but what we see here is that he is testing the waters, and he is evaluating uh, how the woman will respond and whether or not she might be vulnerable to deception. Now, we should pause for a moment here just to acknowledge the fact that Moses does not explain why this is happening. The New Testament implies that that Satan is ultimately at work here through the serpent, but the exact nature of that relationship is not not made clear. So is is Satan posing as a serpent, or has he possessed a serpent, or is he somehow working together with the serpent? We don't know, because the text just focuses on what is happening and not on why it's happening. But as the woman replies— She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, many people have pointed out that there are a number of problems with the response that the woman gives, but we're going to highlight just three of them briefly. First of all, the woman's reply downplays the abundance of God's provision for the man and the woman. The Lord said that they may eat as much as they want from every tree in the garden except for the one tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And there's an emphasis there on the, the lavishness of God opening up all of creation for the man and the woman to enjoy. But here, the woman simply says that that they may eat of the trees of the garden, which is is missing a certain sense of, of God's goodness. It's almost like, like God gave you Dr. Pepper to drink, but you're just acting like it's Dr. Thunder from Walmart or something. Okay? She, she doesn't seem to appreciate the goodness of everything that God has offered them, and that's a troubling sign. Second, you'll probably remember from last week that God never said that they could not touch the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. He simply told them that they could not eat from it. Right? But here, uh, the woman insists that they are not supposed to touch it. And so she's also adding to the command. And then finally, when she says, lest we die, that only suggests a possibility. Like if you do this, then you might die. But in no uncertain terms, the Lord was clear that if they eat from this tree, they will certainly die. And so it's clear that the woman does not have a firm grasp of what the Lord said. And seeing an opportunity... In verse 4, the serpent responds, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so in light of the, the woman's confusion, the serpent comes out and denies the truth of God's word, and he challenges the Lord's motivations in giving his instructions. Right? Not only does he say that, that God is wrong, He also implies that God is being selfish. God is is holding something back that would be good for you to have. And the reason that he's doing that is because he wants it all for himself. He doesn't want you to have it and for you to become like him. And I think it's worth noting that this is still the way that Satan tempts us to sin even today. He tempts us to question either the, the truthfulness or the clarity, or the sufficiency of what God has said to us in his word. 
Right? The scriptures command us to do something, or they command us not to do something. And Satan comes up and he says, did God really say that? Are we sure? I'm not, I'm not so certain about that. You know, maybe that's, that's not what God means. Maybe that's just an interpretation of that passage. Or, or I'm not so sure that that's what God said. You know, that was in the ancient world when people really didn't know any better, but that's completely outdated here in the modern society. Or, or if nothing else, he will cast doubt on God's goodness in giving us his commandments. You know, God really just wants to control you. He wants to make sure you don't have too much fun. He's a cosmic uh, killjoy, and, and you'll be much happier if you just do what you want to do. Right? And so, like the Apostle Paul, we don't want to be outwitted by Satan because we are not ignorant of his schemes. So be aware and stand on God's word. But back to the story. This whole scenario should have raised a number of questions, right? Like, like first of all, who are you? How did you get all of this information that you are trying to convince me of? And not least of all, you're a snake, so why are you talking to me? Right? Any number of, of red flags that should have caused the woman to, to think twice about whether or not this creature should be trusted. But unfortunately, instead of questioning the snake, the woman chooses to question God. And what happens next changes the course of all of human history, which we'll see as we pick up again in verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so, as the woman listens to the serpent, she looks at the tree, and she has to admit that it looks good. And it, it's, she's pretty sure that it will taste good. And she can't deny that she would like to have the wisdom that the serpent has promised it will give to her. And so in the second half of verse 6, she takes some of the fruit and she eats it. And then, don't miss this, she also gives some to her husband who was with her. Right? Now, the, the serpent has been addressing the woman, but the man is right there. We saw last week that, that, that the Lord gave the man the primary responsibility for working and keeping the garden. And yet he has allowed this serpent to come into the garden unchecked and to slander the God that he was created to represent. And he has not intervened as his wife comes under its influence. And now as the woman chooses to disobey God, the man follows her lead 
and eats the fruit as well. And I want to take a second here to address husbands and fathers. This, this applies to men and women, but, but I want to exhort our men in particular as those God has called to lead. Men, I want you to consider whether or not the enemy is gaining access to your family while you just stand there. I want to ask you whether or not the enemy is getting access to your family while you just stand there. It's so easy for us to read this story and think, ah, what was Adam doing? But what are we doing? Is the enemy gaining access to your family while you just stand there? I trust that if someone broke into your home and was trying to hurt your family, that you would do anything that you needed to do to protect them physically. But do you have that same kind of diligence for protecting them spiritually? Are you allowing the world to set the agenda for your family? Or do you prioritize the kingdom of God and the life of the church and work to point your family to the Lord at home? Do you pray for them consistently and ask the Lord to be at work in their hearts and in their lives? Are you pursuing the Lord in your own life as an example to them? More than ever before, this world needs men who will be who God designed them to be. Right, we, we need to show the world an alternative where, where husbands are not overbearing on the one hand or, or passive on the other, but humbly and lovingly take the initiative to ensure the physical and spiritual well-being of their families, of their churches, and, and of their communities as a whole. Adam does not do that. And in verse 7, we see that at that moment, the eyes of both were opened. But rather than possessing divine wisdom, they become aware of the fact that they are naked. All right, so last week we saw that the man and the woman were described as being naked and unashamed. And I mentioned that that referred to the fact that they existed in a state of, of moral innocence, that it was free of any sense of self-consciousness. Right, but eating this forbidden fruit has, has resulted in a deep sense of guilt. And now that sense of guilt has, has created a sense of self-consciousness. And they have an overwhelming feeling of insecurity. And so the man and the woman scramble, and they find some fig leaves, and they, they join them together to provide themselves with makeshift clothes to try to cover up. And then in verse 8, they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. He's coming towards them. Now, when I was a kid, I always knew when my dad got home from work because I could hear the sound of his, his truck door closing from outside. And that sound could produce either great excitement or intense dread. Right? So if I was expecting to play catch with him or if we were going to go out to eat that night, then that sound produced great excitement. But if it was report card day or if I had done something wrong at school that day, then that sound caused intense dread because I knew what was coming. And here, the man and the woman hear the sound of the Lord coming towards them in the garden, and they are painfully aware of the fact that they have messed up. And so as they hear the Lord approaching, they try to hide from him by ducking behind some of the trees in the garden. But then the Lord calls for the man, and he says, Where are you? The man says, uh, I, I heard you coming, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself because I didn't want you to see me indecent. And the Lord 
asks in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? You see, that would have been a perfectly logical explanation, except for the fact that God created him to be that way, and it's never been a problem up until now. And so, of course, the only explanation is that the man has come to see this for himself as a result of eating from the forbidden tree. But in response, rather than stepping up and taking responsibility for what he has done, the man points to the woman and says, I didn't go get the fruit. She did. She took it. You know, I'm I'm just standing here, minding my own business, and and she comes up and says, here, eat some of this. And and that's, that's why I ate it. And so the Lord turns and he says to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, I, I didn't intentionally seek the fruit out. Right? The serpent deceived me, and that's why I ate of it. And so the deed has been done, and now the man and the woman have been found out. And we're going to see the consequences of this decision as we pick up again in verse 14. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field." By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so picking up in verse 14, the Lord doesn't even bother questioning the serpent. Instead, he pronounces judgment against it. While the serpent had been described as being more crafty than all of the other animals, the Lord now declares that it is cursed above all other animals. And so we see that that, that things here have changed for the animal kingdom. The animals are cursed, but the serpent's proximity to the ground and having to crawl on its belly and eat dust is symbolic of of a lowly position that the Lord is giving it because of its actions in disrupting the created order. Not only that, but in verse 15, the Lord declares that he is putting enmity between the serpent and the woman and between her seed and his seed, her descendants and his descendants. There's going to be an ongoing conflict between them. But in the second half of the verse, the Lord focuses on one particular descendant of the woman, and he promises that he will bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise his heel. Now, this statement distinguishes between a person stomping on the head of a snake, which would be fatal for the snake, and a snake bite to the foot, which could be recovered from. And the idea is that this future individual descendant of the woman is going to destroy the serpent one day, but that he is going to be wounded in that process. We'll talk more about that later. 
Then next in verse 16, the Lord turns his attention to the woman. The result of her sin is that the Lord is going to cause her pain in childbirth to to multiply. In pain, she will bring forth children. Not only that, but the Lord declares that your desire shall be for or against or contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And and this statement is a little more complicated to interpret, but, but essentially, Rather than a harmonious relationship where where the husband exercises loving, self-sacrificing leadership uh, that the wife joyfully supports and follows, now there is going to be conflict and friction between spouses. The wife will attempt to control or to manipulate the husband, and the husband will rule over her aggressively. And certainly history bears consistent testimony to the difficulty of marriage and and societies where women have been largely subjugated by men because instead of loving, self-sacrificing leadership, men have often treated women like property. But the, the point here is that between childbirth and marriage, those two relationships fulfilling the primary responsibilities that the woman was created for is now going to be much more difficult. And then in verse 17, the Lord addresses the man. Because he neglected his responsibility and allowed God's created order to be subverted, the Lord curses the earth. And so now things have changed for the physical world as well. Now the ground will not naturally yield to the man. and His his work is going to be strenuous. And he'll fight against thorns and thistles in the process of, of growing food to survive on until he eventually dies. In other words, now fulfilling the primary responsibilities for which the man was created is going to become much more difficult. And so the effects of sin uh, impact humans, it impacts animals, it affects the, the physical world itself. Nothing is left untouched. But there are still more consequences to come, as we're going to see as we finish the chapter, beginning in verse 20. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so as we pick up in verse 20, we see that Adam gives the woman the personal name of Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The word Eve means life or or living. And I don't think that this is merely incidental information. I I think that Adam choosing this name of, of life, living, is a response of faith to the Lord's promise that he will bring descendants, provide offspring, one of which who will eventually overthrow the work of the serpent. And then in verse 21, we see that the Lord makes clothes for the man and the woman made out of skins. Not only will these clothes cover their nakedness, but they will also offer them protection against the elements of the environment that are no longer always going to be hospitable to them because the earth has been cursed. And that raises the question of where these skins come from. 
And I think that the, the unstated assumption is that an animal or animals have been killed in order to provide their skin as clothing. And while the text stops short of referring to that as a sacrifice proper, I think it certainly lays the foundation for understanding that something or someone must die in order to cover our sin. Then in verse 22, the the Lord says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So we've, we've mentioned the tree of life a couple of times now, but we haven't actually stopped to consider what it is. And I think the obvious implication is that eating from the tree of life would provide the man and the woman with immortality. They would, they would live forever. And if they do that, as things currently stand, then that would make them eternally sinful. And so the Lord drives the man out from the garden to live in the land outside. And at the entrance of the garden, he places cherubim, which are a, a specific type of angelic beings that we don't really know that much about, and also a flaming sword that will prevent anyone from ever being able to access the tree of life. Now, one, one last sidebar, sidebar before we finish. It's commonly objected that the Lord said that Adam and Eve would die if they ate from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they don't. The, the Lord allows them to live. And I understand that objection, but I think it's a short-sighted understanding of what's happening here. All right, first of all, while they are not struck dead right on the spot, by being barred from the tree of life, Adam and Eve are guaranteed to die. Death now becomes inevitable. Uh, Even if death doesn't happen immediately, Adam and Eve are now officially terminal. But beyond that, I would argue that what does happen to them here is actually far worse than physical death. And that's the fact that they die spiritually. Among other things, Adam and Eve's eyes being opened is, is indicative of the fact that their hearts have been altered radically as a result of their sin. Right? The, the fellowship that they have enjoyed with God has been broken. And as I think about it, I, I think that as, as us, as people who have never known existence outside of naturally sinful hearts, it is impossible for us to fully appreciate just how devastating that was. To to go from experiencing absolute perfection to now experiencing the results of the curse of of sin. And so make no mistake, Adam and Eve are going to die, and they have experienced death. They learn for the very first time that sin always leads to death and destruction. And so in our passage this morning, we see how everything fell apart in God's good and perfect creation. Adam and Eve rebel against the Lord by believing the serpent and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this changes everything. Every aspect of creation is affected by sin. And now all of the things that make this life so difficult become realities as a constant testimony to us that things are not the way they are supposed to be. And worst of all, as we just mentioned, we as human beings are are now 
naturally hostile towards God. We are, are, are born, this, this radical change in Adam and Eve is perpetuated genetically, and we are all enemies of God who deserve to receive his judgment in hell. Okay, one more sidebar. Oftentimes, people bristle at this idea, the, the, the concept that we all are guilty because of what Adam and Eve did. That's not fair for all of us to, to suffer the consequences of that. But really, what it comes down to is the nature of leadership. All right, if the President of the United States and Congress uh, pass a declaration of war against another country, then that means that you are at war. Now, you, know, you may disagree with that decision. You may not support that war. You wish it wasn't happening, but it doesn't change the facts. You are a citizen of the United States. The United States is now at war with this other country, and that means you are at war. Right, or if, if mom and dad decide that we need to move to Oklahoma, it really doesn't matter whether you want to or not. You're going to go where they take you because they're your parents. And in the same way, Adam and Eve, as the heads of the human race and our first parents, they chose to rebel against God. And so now all people are born with a sinful nature that rebels against him and deserves his judgment. So that's the bad news of Genesis chapter 3 that, that explains why everything is the way it is today. But there's also good news, and that's that we also see mercy in this passage. Right, the Lord driving Adam and Eve from the garden before they can eat from the tree of life and live forever is, is evidence that reveals that he is unwilling for mankind to remain alienated from him forever. And while Eve's childbearing is going to be difficult, he promises that a future descendant of hers will eventually defeat the serpent and reverse the curse. And of course, the New Testament goes on to reveal this descendant to be Jesus Christ, who has defeated Satan through his life, death, and resurrection, and who now offers forgiveness to anyone who will turn from their sin and place their trust in what he has done to save them. If you think about it, in, in Luke chapter 4, we read about the temptation of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness. And, and Satan is attempting to derail his mission in the very same ways that he tempted Eve, by, by what he saw and by what he could potentially taste and by what he could gain from sinning. But while Eve rejected God's word, Jesus stood firm and, and Satan fled from him. And then while in the Garden of Eden, against all reason, Adam chose to reject God's will and choose his own will instead, Later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, against all reason, Jesus chooses the Father's will over his own. Right? Jesus never sinned, which qualified him to serve as a sacrificial offering on the cross. And not only did he pay the penalty for our sin, but he offers us his perfect righteousness in its place. And so when we trust in Christ, we are united to Jesus by faith in this new creation. And this is a, a major theme that we find throughout the New Testament. For example, in Romans 5, Paul writes, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Adam's sin doomed us all, but Jesus' righteousness can restore us all. In 1 Corinthians 15, we see, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You see, Adam was given life, but Jesus gives life. And in that way, Jesus fulfills the role that Adam was originally supposed to have in filling the earth with living representatives of God's goodness and glory. And so sometimes in systematic theology, Jesus will be thought of as being the true and better Adam who does what the first Adam failed to do. And this is something that we have to understand this morning because there are two and only two options for us. Either we are in Adam with our sinful nature and alienated from God, or we are in Christ and reconciled to God through faith in Jesus and what he has done for us. The Bible is clear that there is nothing that we can do on our own. There is no way that we can be good enough to earn our salvation. We must put all of our hope in Christ alone. And those who do will one day see the tree of life again. In Revelation chapter 22, when Jesus has returned and executed final judgment and gathered his people to himself and the new heavens and the new earth, the apostle John records this. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so when Jesus returns and finishes what he has started, those who have trusted in him will eat from the tree of life and live with him forever. And so Genesis 3 explains how we got to where we are today. But it also gives us hints of hope with the good news that as we sang earlier, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And one day he will eventually redeem all things and renew them. And so this morning, I pray that we will recognize the reality and the significance of our sin, that we will trust in Christ as the seed of the woman who has defeated the serpent, and that we will live our lives for his glory as we wait for him to make all things new. Let's pray together. Father, so much of the Bible is rooted right here in Genesis chapter 3. Lord, everything that is wrong in this world, everything that makes life so painful and difficult, finds its root right here. And yet at the very same time, your commitment to redeeming your creation is found here as well, and we thank you for that. Father, you had every right to just shut it down right there and to judge us in our sin and allow it to go no further. But instead, you have made salvation available through Jesus, the seed of the woman who has defeated the serpent. So Father, I pray that this morning we would just have a fresh appreciation 
for the great salvation that you have provided, that we would be inspired to live our lives standing on your word in all things as we seek to point to you as the only hope that can be found in this world. And so, Father, as we take time to respond now, I pray that you would lead us to respond in line with your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.